previously on Murder, Etc. I really think Frank Walker was in another circumstance would have been a good law enforcement officer. He was smart. He had a pretty good heart, and it just this climate. It's so. I mean, it was lawlessness, and if you were a cop, it didn't matter. You crossed the line if you wanted to. Nothing's gonna happen to you. Foster claimed that there was no such thing as the Dixie Mafia. He said that it was invented by the Federal Bureau of Investigation as a publicity stunt. But what Foster called his friends were good old boys. The good old boys did this and the good old boys did that, and a sizable number of them either lived in or operated from or came occasionally to Greenville, South Carolina. Frank just, he said he was on to really something big, and I think it was something due to the inside of where he worked. Or it was somebody of a lot of importance he was going to get for, you know, whatever. It sounded like he was about to bust somebody, and I don't know if it was a narcotics bust or it was just to blow their cover for whatever bad things they were doing, but he was aware of something terribly wrong yeah. that was getting ready to be made public. Here's the thing. People in Greenville are like people everywhere. And like people anywhere, they're going to find a place to go drinking. My name's Larry Smith. I grew up around Brandon, over at West Greenville, Brandon Mill Village. Larry Smith has lived around here his entire life, and his uncle Hoppy served the needs of the thirsty for a few of those decades. He run what we used to call beer joints, and he's always full with selling beer, beer joints, honky-tonks, pool halls, and stuff like that. And so you get all type of people coming in there. Hoppy loved TV shows. Hopalong Cassidy gave him his nickname, and the detective show gave him his name for his beer joint. He used like him TV shows. He named it Hoppy 77 Sunset Strip. He bought another guy's down there and actually called it Hoppy Surfside 6. But 77 Strip was the most famous one. It stuck. Famous, infamous, however you want to look at it, Hoppy's operation was a hit. People could tie one on at the bar and then stumble down to a short order cafe he ran at the other end of the building. And it was all very illegal. As a teenager, Larry worked in the cafe. People get a little high drinking, they want to come down and get a cup of coffee occasionally and all it. I was new about that and I did all the coffee didn't get used up today. I just plugged it up and heated it tomorrow. And one of them drunks got to complain to my uncle said, Man, that, that coffee is so strong it can walk. And Hoppy told me, said, said, Larry, you gotta pour out the coffee and make it fresh every day. I didn't know that. When it came to Hoppy's 77 Sunset Strip, Larry's coffee was stronger than the law on most nights. Back then, they all knew everybody that sold liquor. Some of them houses was set up, you could have a drive-through. You could just pull up and they had a window that they would open and pass it out. You didn't even have to get out of your car. Nevertheless, every once in a while, the law would show up just to keep up appearances. Hoppy's wife, Larry's Aunt Ann, was apparently a bit of a spitfire on those nights. She was just fussing at the law, come out there that day and busted her for it and all. They loaded up all the beer and took it out. She's just a fussing, and I never will forget the cop stood there and he said, Ann, now you know, we have to do this ever so often. This won't even cover the taxes that you ain't paid on. Aunt Ann's fussing aside, Hoppy's joint managed to survive long enough to become a neighborhood legend. And how did that happen? Well, the way Larry tells it, on the days they weren't enduring the law showing up, they were enjoying it. 
because behind some of those badges were friends. But anyway, I remember one Saturday night up there, uh, they got raided. With the cops at the door, the drunks scattered and stumbled away, and a lot of them needed rides home. Back in the early 60s, Greenville County was still home to an active military facility, Donaldson Air Force Base, and some of those drunks were airmen. Out after curfew. I loaded up two of the guys to take them out there, and we had to drive around and go to a back thing so the guys could crawl back over the fence like they had got out. Larry deposited his drunk airmen at the back fence of the airbase and got ready to head back to Hoppy's when he saw another car pull up. And then just as we let him out, they went over the fence, started pulling up there, and lo and behold, there was Bub Skelton. Bub, a name that would become so legendary in Greenville County that a good many people wouldn't even remember the one his mom gave him, Carl Cashin Skelton. But Bub, people would speak that name for another four decades with awe, even when they called him Lieutenant Skelton. That night, I met him out there at Donaldson, you know, I thought, well, here, here's the law bringing somebody back so they can climb over the fence and get in. He can't be all bad. But then, you know, years later when I'm... It all ran into decades of head shaking and questions about Bub, charged with murder in the 50s, accidentally shot by his partner in the 60s, part of a crazy band of bank robbers in the 70s, a lieutenant for a gambling kingpin in the 80s. And through at least half of that time, he was a Greenville County lawman. With a city of Greenville in every state, a lot of people might ask, where is this place? A better question may be, what is this place? Where a crooked cop could keep his badge for so long? What is this place where Frank Looper, the most dedicated drug cop in the county, gets murdered in broad daylight? What is this place that sends a man to death row and is still having to answer questions about it four decades later? This place? is just one of the most celebrated cities in America right now. We're cleaner, we're greener, and we're a lot safer. This is Greenville, South Carolina. You might have seen it pop up in just about every glossy publication over the past decade. The marketing campaign that's helped make this city so hot has its own hashtag on social media. Hashtag, yeah, that Greenville. We're growing very fast, and I think Greenville is getting some success by the fact that we're doing things different from a lot of cities. We don't get everything right, but we get a lot right that other cities don't get it all right. Longtime Greenville Mayor Knox White is one of the chief architects of this city's modern success. He was a lot younger back in the mid-1970s, back when there was no hashtag or social media, back when the marketing campaign was a billboard featuring a woman who looked a lot like Beaver Cleaver's mom, smiling next to the slogan, it's good to be home in Greenville. Back when a campaign trying to connect the word good with Greenville was a much harder stretch. Somebody recently gifted Mayor White a 1970s reminder. Somebody brought me a book just recently. In the 1970s, there was a best-selling book called The Book of List, and it was the top 10 this, the top 10 that. It's a big, thick book, and it covers the waterfront, and this is it's kind of funny, you know, pre-social media, best restaurants in the, in the United States, best this. But they also had a whole chapter on best cities in America. And they had lists of best cities, best mid-sized cities, best large cities, best small cities. And then they had a section called Worst Cities in America. Worst big cities, worst small cities. And do you know that Greenville and Charleston are on the list of worst cities in America? Mayor White is pretty thankful his city's on a good list these days. Because that city's history is so weird, corrupt, and deadly, it makes good fellows look like a Walt Disney production. 
Because again, here's the thing. People in Greenville are like people anywhere. Some of them want to buy drugs. And naturally, where there's a buyer, there's a seller. Sometimes a lot of them. In the early 1970s, Lieutenant Frank Looper started to butt heads with the local drug dealers. And when he was first starting out, he crossed paths with another young lawman. I remember we were riding through Brutontown, and there was three or four people standing around a 55-gallon drum that, that had a fire in it. As we drove up, one of them put something in a waistband. And Several years before he became sheriff, Johnny Mac Brown was part of a three-man task force, the first of its kind in Greenville County. And those three men were in for an eye-opener, one that began when they pulled 19 packs of white powder out of a man's waistband. Kent had been to a one-week drug school, and so he said, I, I think this is drugs. We sent it off to the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs at that time, and it came back positive heroin, the first heroin I'd ever seen in my life. That powder was just a dusting of what was to come. Before long, the federal government would declare war on drugs, and Frank Luber became Greenville County's frontline soldier. Heroin became, as you know, Brad, very popular back in the late 60s, early 70s. And then we saw, of course, marijuana was here, and then we saw these psychedelic drugs pop up, LSD and Pody cactus, and I think they even had one called LBJ. I don't know what that stood for, but. On top of all the street drugs, a mountain of pills. Unlike drugs grown elsewhere and shipped in, or drugs made in some clandestine lab, pharmaceutical distributors had their pills locked up tight. That meant before the criminals could deal drugs, they had to steal drugs. And we're not talking about taking a sleeping pill out of grandma's medicine cabinet. Back in the early 70s, according to one-time prosecutor Billy Wilkins, the thieves worked in bulk. They'd backed the a truck up to the dock, the loading dock, so it didn't look suspicious. This particular haul happened at a huge drug lab on the edge of town, and that score was massive. The thieves stole one of the lab's vans, a white 1967 Chevy, and filled it with enough amphetamines to keep the entire city of Greenville awake for a really long time. And then, because it seemed so easy, they came back in a few months and did it again, this time cutting into the vault with a blowtorch. They stole so much, turned out stealing them was easier than selling all of them. It happened at a lab that shared a name with a popular state park. Table Rock, Table Rock Labs, and they got a, they said a million dollars worth of amphetamines. A million dollars in the early 1970s. That's more than six million dollars in today's money. And some people say that's a conservative estimate. If drugs had been the only problem in Greenville, it still would have been overwhelming. But Greenville was home base for a massive and nationally criticized illegal gun market and an epidemic of gun violence, second per capita, only to the country's third biggest city. We were second in the country in, in shooting, and this was little Chicago, we called it for a while. Asked to sum up the 1970s in Greenville, Sheriff Brown had one word. One word, wild. It needed to be tamed. It wasn't the Wild West, but it was wild. Sheriff Brown was part of a team that tamed this town, and now some 40 years later, people don't like to talk about the past, about dead deputies, drug wars. Here's an example. When the trailer and website for Murder Etc. first launched, Greenville started to stir. And when it did, some voices weren't too happy with the show's early promotions, especially the part that said corruption and violence had overrun the city in the 1970s. One lady wrote on Facebook, pretty sensational to say the least. 
first I've heard of Greenville, South Carolina being described like that. There's a good explanation, according to one-time prosecutor Billy Wilkins. There were really two Greenvilles here in the up part of the state. If you lived um, out in Botany Woods or out the Augusta Road area, you, you, didn't, you didn't know, you didn't see, or have really affected by the fact that at night, the streets of Main Street turned into drug dealing places, houses, uh, places of prostitution. Botany Woods, Augusta Road, they've always been well-to-do places. And when challenged by another Facebook commenter, one who knew the other Greenville, our first critic conceded, well, she wouldn't know about that. She lived in a different part of the county and not in West Greenville. Or, in her words, the wrong side of town. Historian and author John Boinowski said, that side of town, one full of wonderful communities, like the one where Larry Smith grew up, grew troubled when the textile mills left town and took their jobs with them. They laid off people because some of these mills were gigantic. And so what happened is all of a sudden some of these communities were no longer there. So people stopped working there. So people who had jobs started leaving the communities to find better jobs. And so they moved out of the mill community. So the mill communities start to suffer. Over time, that led people to have the impression Greenville County was dying or already dead. No, downtown was dead. The rest of the county was booming and it was happening. Those things were going on and it kind of made downtown even worse. Not only that, but prior to Sheriff Johnny Mac Brown taking office in 1977, the standards of Greenville County law enforcement left a lot to be desired. You had a sheriff's office that didn't have high standards. So the crime was a big backlash of it. It was, you know, it's poverty. The 70s were, weren't the best time for the American economy. You had people out of jobs. In the 70s, it was the perfect storm of, you know, this is where your boat gets capsized and no one sees it again. It's the, they got hit between three waves of a, of a poor economy, a rising drug, drug trend. And then at, the time, at least at the start of the decade, a sheriff's office that was, wasn't quite equipped for it. They were still, you know, working on 1920s standards. Downtown, West Greenville, Southern Side, over on Pendleton Street where Frank Looper's family had lived for generations, they all became communities full of suffering. One of the many reasons it's impolite to talk about all of those troubles is because this wonderful 2019 city, Greenville 2.0, hasn't fully reckoned with its past yet. Reckoning often takes conversation, and there's some things that one just doesn't say in the South. The simple act of not saying things, in many cases, easily masquerades as refined gentility and friendliness. Just ask attorney Eric Gottlieb. 18 years ago, he came down from New York to represent Charles Wakefield Jr. at a parole hearing and ended up at the police department picking up some documents. I remember the person at the counter sort of turned to, to go retrieve something and I looked at the lady next to me and I said, wow, everyone's so friendly down here. She just laughed and said, you have no idea. Perhaps I was a little, a little naive. If you're not from around here, it's easy to let down your guard. Because of all the things you don't say in the South, you can say, bless your heart. And bless your heart can mean, bless your heart. And it can also mean, you poor thing. You're so ignorant and homely, I'm surprised you managed to find a husband. It's complicated. Sometimes when folks say, bless your heart, the sentiment doesn't quite match what you see in their eyes. And as for Greenville County, Billy Wilkins says sometimes the worst stuff happened in corners no one could see. There was a lot of criminal activity going on under the surface, and it was unchecked by law enforcement because there was too much, there was corruption in the law enforcement community. 
that allowed a lot of this lawlessness to go on. Indeed, even some of the members of law enforcement were involved in criminal activity. Southern refinement is one reason people tend to keep their mouths shut. Fear is another. That corruption Wilkins talked about ran rampant, at one point right into Larry Smith's family. He had a relative who was a cop, one who ended up in prison, never publicly revealing what Larry said was the best defense, an allegation that a superior officer was corrupt too. You know, we're not wanting him to serve any time and that man, and he shares a few things with us, and, man, why don't you, why don't you tell this? I mean, ain't no need for you. You and these other two or three others take the whole fall when it's, you're not even the leaders. And I never will forget his word to me was, I'd rather serve a little time and be alive than tell and be dead. That pretty well told me all I needed to know at that time. Larry has chosen to stay here his entire life. But he's not as in love with Greenville 2.0 as other people are. He's not a fan of the new downtown or the lack of parking. Nor is he a fan of being polite. He kept thinking about that superior officer he believed was crooked. Not Bub Skelton, but somebody else. And he was thinking about the public's response when that man died. He's getting all these wild big praises and I'm thinking, oh yeah, boy, let's just praise him to the hilt to the top of the mountain how great he was and this is the man that I understood was right in the midst of all of the bad stuff that was going on. I'm thinking I can't be the only one that knows this. There's other people in law that know this but they ain't none of them got the guts enough to stand up and say hey this wasn't the guy you thought he was you know well let's be political correct now you know you don't want to hurt his reputation you don't want to bother his hurt his family and embarrass his family and all like that. How about what he did to his family all them years? Larry isn't like most people in town. The people who love this city in a way you don't find in many other places. They love it so much they're often willing to ignore or conveniently forget. This was once a place where some of the ugliest and most horrific crimes happened. Where a cop could be shot just behind his ear and the notion of justice was just as malleable as the phrase, bless your heart. Which brings us back to Bub. Started pulling up there, and lo and behold, there was Bub Skelton. Carl Cashin Bub Skelton. He was an arson investigator. He was a high-ranking sheriff's deputy for years. He was a politician who ran for county coroner. He was a cop who took to moonlighting as a crook. One who worked that second job for almost the rest of his life. Author Max Corson wrote a book about the Dixie Mafia. One that included how Bub would tip off criminals and run interference for them in exchange for a cut of their score. Skelton, you know, when you stop and think about it, a man who is in the law enforcement line who decides, listen, I'm going to give you some information that's illegal, but uh, you, you give me some money in return. That's a daring, that's a daring attitude to have. In addition to that, Corson wrote, Bub introduced the Dixie Mafia, or good old boys, to a well-known junkyard on Greenville's west side, one within eyeshot of Frank Looper's grave. Well, that seemed to have been the uh, gathering place, particularly from Bud Skelton's point of view. It was safe because he was out of sight. The um, various people such as Foster and Foster's good old boys, uh, he could talk with them there in comfort and in safety. Greenville was the uh, nerve center to go out 10, 15, 20, 30 miles to these banks 
and uh, to rob them and come back and split the money. So it was, it was a good hideout. To an outsider, Bub Skelton's audacity appears so brazen that it's hard to see him as anything but a villain. But when native Greenville folks start to talk about Bub, it's really hard to figure out if they're saying, bless his heart, or bless his heart. My first impression of Bub Skelton, and he did, he did law enforcement stuff. I mean, he, I mean, he did his job on one side of Bub was a dedicated law enforcement officer, and he was fearless. I mean, he'd walk into a gun battle, but he had another side of him that was, uh, that was um, criminal. This conversation with Billy Wilkins sounds a lot like how other people around Greenville talk when the subject of Bub Skelton comes up. Like when I asked a retiree from the public defender's office to talk about Bub. But uh, the story on Bub Skelton was, I, I feel sorry for his family on this for even saying that, but... Bub's family members are still loved to this day, and that's another common thread. And then there are the people who simply say, hey, they knew Bub for most of their lives. Among those people is sitting sheriff Johnny Mac Brown. I certainly didn't approve of what Bub Skelton did, but Bub Skelton and, my, and his dad and my dad used to rabbit hunt together. Or John, John Skelton and my dad rabbit hunt together. I've known Bub, Bub, I knew Bub for a year. Bub Skelton is an enigma because for every person who will whisper a secret in your ear about him, you'll find another person happy to tell you Bub wasn't all bad or even mostly bad. You'll hear an unapologetic respect and in many cases, reverence. Reverence expressed with a shrug of the shoulders and a look on their faces that says, come on, it's Bub, what are you gonna do? And that's how Bub Skelton affected people, like he did the teenage Larry Smith the night the cops raided Hoppy's 77 Sunset Strip. And I always thought that was a good gesture of him that night that he took those Air Force guys back out to Donaldson Air Base. You know, he could have took them to jail, but he took them out there. So that always stuck in my mind, because I was 16, I think, when that happened. Like trying to understand Greenville, South Carolina, like trying to understand its people. Trying to understand Bub Skelton requires a conversation of a rather delicate nuance. And if you need nuance, defense attorney Frank Epps Jr. is a good place to start. Just try to ask him about people and call them bad guys. Bad guys is a euphemism. There are people that went to jail. Epps' father was a famous judge in upstate South Carolina, the one who presided over the Looper murder trial. And he was a friend of Bub Skelton. Frank Epps Jr. remembers Bub being someone he could count on, like he did after Judge Epps made a failed bid for governor. The day after the governor's race, when my father had lost, we had to clean out a building where his campaign headquarters were. And the two people that showed up were a sled agent who was one of my father's best friends and Bub Skelton. And I always thought a lot of Bub for coming to help do that. That helped me that day. And I've heard Skelton's charisma and likability described in the same terms as President Bill Clinton's. Right or wrong, people got a sense that Bub truly cared about his friends and friendships. Epps felt that same kind of thing. And to this day, he feels Bub Skelton's friendliness was genuine. I always knew him. And, you know, the weird thing about those guys, and I knew him in a different context than committing crimes or anything else, particularly the law enforcement officers involved, they seemed like good guys. They were nice to me, and I don't know what they were up to or why they were up to it. And as they got older, after they got out of jail, they continued to be nice to me. Epps' nuanced look at Skelton goes beyond mere friendship. As a defense attorney, Epps deals with people in trouble all the time. And where the public sees villains, Epps often sees people. As a criminal defense lawyer, it's always an interesting dichotomy between the way people 
want to treat your clients and talk about your clients and the fact that you know them as human beings. And it is something that when people hear stories, they act like it is something that should have been obvious when somebody's committed a crime, but yet, you know, takes their mother to church. They act like some, you ought to be able to tell that they're capable of whatever they did. And, and that's just nuts. People are, people do all kinds of things for all kinds of reasons, but Bub Skelton, as far as I was concerned, is a great guy. And that's just it. That's how Bub Skelton fits so well in Greenville, somehow expertly straddling that fine line between right and wrong. That's the same line the city walks with its history on every one of its tree-lined downtown streets, past the bistros and bars, past the galleries and theaters, over the waterfalls and through the parks. When you see so much good, it's much easier to ignore the bad. Mayor Knox White is hoping his growing and changing population believes Greenville is far enough removed from being one of the worst cities in the nation. It was 1976. Wow, it certainly changed now. I mean, we were on the same list with Charleston on Conte Nash for, you know, best best smaller cities in, in, the, in the United States or in the world. Um, it's Charleston, Asheville, Greenville. Greenville, though, you know, still something I don't, I still have to kind of pinch myself that we're on all these, all these great lists. People come on the weekends in particular, just huge crowds, families, all kind of people. Um, it's probably the most welcoming and diverse place anywhere in our region. John Bornowski, the historian you heard earlier, chose to live in Greenville many years ago, and he loves it here, despite the fact the city's signature river was once ridiculously polluted, and that the city has statues downtown of mice or rats, depending on who you ask, and that one of Greenville's best-known ancestors was accused of throwing the 1919 World Series. Two of Greenville's most famous sons are both named Jackson. Shoeless Joe was a baseball player accused of throwing the series. Jesse is a civil rights leader who once worked alongside Martin Luther King Jr., like a lot of things here, both are controversial figures. But there's only a statue of one of them in Greenville. You can visit Shoeless Joe just outside the downtown ballpark. Here's Greenville in a nutshell. Why it's the worst city. Don't come to Greenville. We don't want you here. You don't want to come here. Our downtown has a polluted river, which we all love. Our statues, we have statues to rats that caused the Black Plague all throughout our downtown. And our other famous statue is a guy who threw the World Series. We're not a nice town. Um, the guy who founded our city, Richard Paris, who got the settlement cheated to get this. So we were built on a lie. You know, we had a, a, a dirty river. We have rats and uh, got through the World Series. That's, that's Greenville. That's, 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 uh, that is us. That is us. It's the punchline to a joke Boynowski tells neighboring city leaders when he's out promoting Greenville. As Homer Simpson once said, it's funny because it's true. Bub Skelton was not the baddest man in Greenville County, but he might have been the best man to represent the community and its troubles in the 1970s. A man straddling the line between good and bad in ways that would end up hurting people on both sides. Skelton had a lot of both, the good you've just heard and the bad you eventually will. Serious criminal charges in three different decades, convictions in two of them, and a long history with a group of criminals Lieutenant Frank Looper was fighting. To history, Carl Cash and Skelton might go down as a member of a notorious gang. But to a lot of people, he'll always just be Bub. As Larry Smith once thought, man, he was someone I knew. I thought he was a good guy. It turns out he's a crook. <laughs> so, you know, when things like that happen, it makes you stop and, and wonder lots of times that we get so 
lukewarm, I guess, to say. We're, with our surroundings, we're not as attentive. Sometimes we can just be blindsided. It's just interesting to look back. I mean, I could have probably easily have just fell right in with, with that group because I was around them, but I didn't. Larry, another son of Greenville, one who isn't so polite, thinks about the different direction his life took, one that didn't land him in prison or Graceland Cemetery. He was aimed right in that direction until something else caught his eye, what his young son was seeing when they would go out to his uncle's beer joint for dinner. The drunks would come staggering in the back porch, you know, wanting to buy something, and we sat in our table, and I got to thinking. I said, you know, I can turn a blind eye to this because I don't do that and all, but I'm responsible for my son right here, and I, he, he don't understand all this. It's like it's everyday activity they, they coming in and buying. It was around that time Larry stopped looking past what he knew was wrong and instead turned around and left it behind him. He told his uncle... He had to quit. Like that side of the family just turned me off because all of a sudden, Larry's got saved. You know, none of us is saved until, unless we're right when the Lord comes. But that's the term everybody likes to throw out there. Oh, Larry got saved and he thinks he's better than all of us because he goes to church now. Just by his nature, he charted a path for his family out of 1970s Greenville. One that isn't the stuff of Greenville legend. But unlike a lot of families who went another direction back then, it's one that he is not ashamed to talk about. Some folks may say that he thinks he's better than them now. And while he could say, bless your heart, he won't. I just had a different direction for my life than what they were living. You can't wallow in the mud without getting dirty. By now, you've heard five episodes of Murder, Etc. They were all introductions, a sort of necessary context before we go back to the beginning. That day in Greenville, 1975, when somebody killed Frank Looper and his father. A jury made its decision based on a story it heard, a specific story with specific context about a murder. The first five episodes of this show, these introductions, were context about the etc. The atmosphere, the city, the criminals Frank Looper was fighting. A story we can now begin to tell in full. Also, I need to say a quick thank you to the people who've reached out to me since Murder Etc. began and offered me more information to help tell this story the right way. I enjoyed our conversations and interviews, and I hope more people will follow your lead and reach out. Next time on Murder Etc. Introductions finished, the investigation and the terror that came with it begin. She described being terrified when the sheriff came to her home on a condolence call, she was afraid of him and would not see him because she was convinced that people within the department had killed Frank. The first hours of the Looper murder investigation on the next Murder Etc.